Now, church family, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something that's going to shock you as we come to the Word today. Did you know that God is a communist and He advocates for communism in society? I remember the first time I ever sat with somebody I love and trusted, and they proceeded to imply that. And they proceeded to imply it, and by the way, it's not just they who proceeded to imply it. They, they merely made an implication. There are those who would legitimately say that. And they would come to passages like Acts chapter 2 where it says that all the believers were selling their possessions and, and they were holding all things in common so that no one had any need. And they'll come to those passages and say, ah, oh, see what that is? It's, it's corporate ownership. It's, it's, it, there's no private property. There's no one. All of a sudden, on down the line, here we go. We've now built a doctrine that says God is communist, ignoring the fact that the entire philosophy of communism is built on the singular pillar and conviction that belief in the God of the Bible needs to be eradicated from all society for utopia to occur. So let's be clear today. God is not a communist. His word does not advocate communism. But I give you that somewhat to just make sure you're paying attention as we come this morning. Good job on saying no. Two... Because that is an example of what I perceive to be one of the greatest dangers to the faith today, which is how many counterfeit gospels and how many false theologies where we're not being told your Bible's wrong, we're being told you've just misunderstood it. Let me enlighten you to how to properly understand it. And then as I enlighten you to how to properly understand it, I tell you that things which God has said are sin and historically the church has always understood to be sin, all of a sudden now they're no longer sin. The great danger is not that we're being told the Bible's wrong. The great danger is we're watching the Bible be twisted to advocate for things that are clearly violations of God's character. Now, how are you and I going to deal with that kind of reality. Some of the arguments people will come up with are just absolutely ludicrous. Some are pretty sneaky. How are you and I going to contend for the faith? Well, if we're going to contend for the faith, we better know what we're contending for. So I invite you, church family, turn with me back to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, one, one chapter probably one or a page and a half in your Bible. You can find the page number on the back if you're unfamiliar. I'll give you the easiest navigation. Open to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and go one page before Revelation 1. You'll be in Jude. And remember when we started Jude last week, here's what Jude writes and says. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, which means Jude is a biological half-brother of Jesus, says, to those who are the called Beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you, be increasing and growing amongst you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, so I was zealous and eager, remember from last week, I was eager and zealous to write to you about the greatness of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. The absolute wonder of the fact that you and I who are born into this world, broken and bound in, by, by the chains of sin, 
deserving of a righteous and holy and just judgment that we who are born out of relationship with our creator in in active rebellion that that Jesus has come and he's lived the perfect life he's offered the perfect sacrifice we cannot he's he's taken our punishment on the cross he's he's died on our behalf my debt's been paid and he's risen from the grave to offer this salvation this exchange He takes my sin, I get his righteousness when I come to him in faith, understanding that he is Lord and I need him to save me so I can know him and follow him as Lord. So I wanted to write to you about the greatness and wonder of this salvation. And I was excited, zealous, but he says, but I felt the necessity. Remember that word? I felt this absolute constraining pressure where I could do nothing else. There was an urgency that had to throw everything else aside so I could come and write this to you. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was handed down to the saints once for all. He said, I had this necessity to write to you appealing, calling you to come alongside is what the word is. It speaks of one who's, who's already in the battle crying out to those who may be hesitant or fearful with words of encouragement, spurring them on to come rushing into the battle by their side. He says, I'm, I'm calling you to come together, church. I'm calling to you, I'm appealing, I'm, I'm urgently exhorting you to contend. And here's the central command for the whole letter that you and I are called to contend. And that word contend, it speaks of an active, hard struggle. We get the English word agony from from it. It speaks of an an intense exertion and a strenuous effort. He says, I'm calling you to contend, to fight the good fight of the faith, not just fight the good fight of the faith in terms of following it, but to actively contend for the one true faith, to stand against that which is false, to stand for that which is right. As I'm calling you to contend and under church family, if we're going to contend for the faith, it's going to demand time, effort, energy. The nature of the word means that our living in this world, a broken world bound and, and under the destruction of sin, to contend for the one true faith will be hard. There will be times it will be gut-wrenching. It'll require emotional, spiritual, physical, and mental, the totality of all the effort we can give. It may even leave us with scars. And he wouldn't command it if it wasn't easily neglected, either by fear, distraction, personal desire. But here he says, I am writing earnestly. I am driven by a pressure and constraint that leaves me no other option than to call for you to stand up and to contend. And last week we saw, if we're going to contend for the faith, you've got to know why. Why are you contending? Well, why do we contend? Because of whose we are. We are the called. We're God's. Who are we? We're beloved and kept for him. What has he given us? We're to, we're to embrace whose we are and who we are and to desire what he gives. You can't contend if you don't know why. That's what we saw last week. But here he says, central to the whole letter, contend for What? Great, I know why I'm contending. Now, what am I contending for? What am I contending for? What are we contending for in Christ? Look what he says. Contend earnestly for the faith. 
which was once for all handed down to the saints. For the faith. Notice he doesn't say, I'm, I'm, I'm writing to you, appealing to you that you contend earnestly for faith. In a world of atheism, contend for faith. Faith is real. The case for faith, it's, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm writing to you and contending that you contend for the faith. Not for any faith, not for your faith or my faith, not for the faith that's most common, but for a specific faith, the faith. It implies something that is absolute, meaning something that is true and real and actual in all time, at all places, for all people, regardless of how many people there are, regardless of what language they speak, regardless of what is popular or not in their culture. It speaks of something, the faith, that is objective, meaning the truth of this faith, the reality of this faith, is not dependent upon you or me or anybody else and any of our opinions about it, good, bad, or otherwise. It is absolute. It is objective. And when we say the faith, we saw this back in James, when you see that, the faith in Scripture, what's it referring to? It's referring to the total message of God. The total message of God. It implies not only doctrines we believe, facts that we rest the weight of our being on in truth, but it implies a transformed life on the basis of those truths. It's holistic. It says, I want you to contend for the faith. And look how he prefaces the faith. The faith handed down or passed down, or maybe your Bible says delivered the idea is it speaks to something which has been authoritatively, which has been authoritatively, formally, authentically, rightly passed down from one to another to another to another. Here it's used in, the, in a broad way to speak of the faith, the true faith, the one true faith wasn't because we went and searched it out. It's not because any human beings decided to sit down and muse on, on, on the created world around them and, and all of a sudden it came because God revealed himself to man. And in revealing himself to man, God then had men write down that revelation. And that revelation has been passed down, Old Testament, New Testament, what we call the Bible authoritatively, authentically, passed down. We understand, church family, the faith which is absolute, the faith which is objective, the faith which is the total truth that Scripture presents about God, it has been handed down authoritatively by God. Amen. We did not come up with it as human beings. We didn't come up with it, and God didn't come up with it. He just told us what's true, Amen. what's true about Him, what's true about reality, what's true about creation. Thus saith the Lord. It's covering all throughout Scripture. The faith is authoritatively handed down to us by God. And it is perfectly revealed to us in Christ. If you've got your Bibles, turn a couple pages to the left to the book of Hebrews. You're going to pass 3rd, 2nd, 1st John. You're going to pass 2nd and 1st Peter. You're going to pass James. You're going to get to Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. And yes, I know I just did those numbers in backwards order. I didn't want to confuse you as you're turning. Here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 1. God, 
after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his son. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He mentions God, the one true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons, each unique and distinct, the triune God that Scripture presents from the very beginning, in the beginning, God, that God. He says, God, long ago, in times past, spoke to us in a variety of ways. There's a variety of ways in many portions, meaning in, in certain amounts. So what he says is, in the past, God spoke in a variety of ways. We find in the Old Testament, he spoke through dreams. He spoke through burning bushes. He spoke through angels. He spoke through prophets. When he spoke, he would reveal certain things. When he meets with Moses at the burning bush, the implication in Scripture is that's the first time God ever tells any human being his personal name. I am who I am. So at certain times, he spoke in different ways, and he spoke different levels. He, he allowed so much light to fall on everything that we could know. It says, but in these last days, and by the way, church family, we live in the days, according to Scripture, known as the last days. The last days weren't something for the recipients of this letter, and we're in the last, last, latter days. We're still in the last days. So in these last days, in our days, he has spoken to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now the implication here is this. In the past, as everything was building up and pointing to the fullness of time when the Son would come, when Jesus would come, God spoke in a lot of different ways. But now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has come, and look what it says about Jesus, whom God appointed the heir of all things, through whom God made the world, And he, being Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. That word exact representation means he is the perfect, actual, tangible, real God himself. He's not a copy. He's not a reflection. He's not a secondary. He is the exact expression. How can, you be the, how can Jesus be the exact expression of God? Because he's God. He's not created by God. He's not a lesser God. He is God. The implication then is this, church family, that Jesus is the final revelation of who God is to mankind. There is no more to come. Jesus is the final perfect revelation of all truth. He says, I am the way, I am the truth. He is the revelation, perfect revelation of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks about the world? Listen to Jesus. Do you know what, want to know what God thinks about humanity? Listen to Jesus. Jesus is the final and perfect revelation of God to man. There is no more revelation to come. None. So the faith is authoritatively handed down by God. It's perfectly revealed in Jesus. And it is inerrantly recorded by the Holy Spirit through men. Turn with me back to your right a couple pages to 2 Peter. So go back through Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what Peter writes. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's what he says. Those of us who are writing to you, we didn't write what we came up with. We're telling you eyewitness what we saw right in front of us. And by the way, ancient culture valued accuracy and reporting what they saw in a way that we don't. If you want to know what I mean, go talk to any ex-high school football player hear what they tell you their stats were, then go track down the stats in the local newspaper and see what they really were. They're always exaggerated. We don't value accuracy. We drift into exaggeration. That's our culture. That's not the first century culture. We reported to you exactly what we saw, but then drop down, look at verse 19. So we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here's what Peter says. And what Paul will say elsewhere in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Every last word in Scripture, the, the faith is, handed, is delivered authoritatively by God. He's the one who says, this is who I am. This is reality. This is creation. This is who you are as human beings. This is the problem, sin. This is the solution, Jesus. This is how it comes, by grace through faith. The faith, it's authoritatively handed down by God. It's perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, God himself, took human authors and inerrantly, without error, recorded all of this revelation down for us in what we call Scripture. The written Word records the truth about the living Word. Jesus Christ. And so all Scripture, going back to the original manuscripts, and any copies of those original manuscripts accurately copied and, and translated, therefore represent and tell you the faith. We contend for what? We contend for the faith. We contend for the absolute objective faith that is clearly revealed and sovereignly protected by God for us to believe. The Holy Spirit moved men to write Scripture. Listen to this reality. Over 40 different human authors God used to write Scripture. Over a period of 1,600 years, some were rulers and kings, others were slaves. Some wrote from the luxury of their own house, some wrote from captivity in a variety of circumstances, yet there is unity of story, unity of doctrine, and unity of purpose throughout it all. And if you want to go, well, okay, pastor, why is that a big deal? Because even in modern day times, when we have everything interconnected as you want, and movie writers set out to say, we're going to make this massive, sprawling movie universe, they can't even keep their own movies from contradicting their own story. Instead, they have to go back and retcon stuff and redo it. and re But you don't find that with Scripture because God wrote it. God authored it. We know Jesus, if Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, he, he affirms the Old Testament as authoritative. The Gospels all record Jesus, and all of the New Testament points to Jesus. Peter, else, uh, at the end of 2 Peter, will even say Paul's letters are equal with Scripture. God's Word. By the way, I mentioned we don't have the original manuscripts. This is a little apologetics for you this morning. 
We don't have the original manuscripts of Scripture. We have something better. We have more copies than anybody could ever dream of for an ancient document. We have over 300 Hebrew manuscripts. We have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the original Scriptures. In addition, we have more than 20,000 ancient manuscripts and other languages from those time periods of both the Old and New Testament. And there are over 30,000 quotations from Scripture by the early church fathers, those pastors who were discipled by the apostles and went on. Did you know that if we didn't have a single copy of Scripture, if all we had were the writings of the church fathers, you could word for word recreate the entire New Testament because of how much they quoted it? In fact, when you come and study ancient documents, uh, scholars will, will give a document a weight based on how many outside secondary sources you know, archaeological, other, other documents affirm the truth. One of the most well-attested in all of history is Josephus's History of the Jews. It's got about 450 outside supporting documents, evidences to give it weight. Did you know that when you come to Scripture, there are over 10,500 secondary outside documents and growing because archaeology is unearthing things all the time that come back and affirm parts of Scripture critics have said are not true. We have the revelation of God. The faith is recorded for us in His Word. He says the faith handed down. And he says once for all, meaning that the faith that God gave us authoritatively given by God, perfectly revealed by Jesus, inerrantly recorded for us by human authors driven by the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. This faith, the faith this book reports and records and calls us to, it's been delivered once for all, meaning this. There's nothing new to be added to it, and there's no part of it that's going to evolve or change with the times. Because God does not change, therefore God's Word, which He breathes, cannot change. He says, I'm writing to you that you appeal earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down for all saints. There is nothing new. God does not change or evolve. His ethics don't evolve. The truth of the gospel doesn't evolve. There's nothing new. So it leads us to ask this question then, well, Pastor, you're great. You've told us all about how we got the faith. But what is it? I'm going to do my best in five minutes to give you a walk of all of Scripture. Here you go. Buckle up. What is the faith? It is a cohesive story revealing a clear doctrine which leads to a transformed and fulfilling existence. It is a cohesive story, a meta narrative, revealing a clear doctrine, truth, theology which leads to a transformed and fulfilling existence, eternal life. What do we mean by a cohesive story? It's a story, creation, fall, redemption, glory. You go to the beginning and you find God creating. God creates everything visible and invisible, seen and unseen. The pinnacle of all His creation is mankind, human beings. He creates them uniquely and distinctly from everything else in creation. They're made by His own special hand. He makes inside of humankind, uniquely and distinctly, biological males and biological females, unique, purpose, and wonderfully created to be exactly that, based on their biology. He makes these people to be, he makes them out of love, to exist in a relationship of perfect love and harmony with Him. 
to take the ideal of the Garden of Eden and to go out into the world that he has created and given them and to spread that ideal throughout to create culture. They're to do it by creating culture and by having families. Those people, though, if that's creation, choose to believe a twisting, did God really say? And they fall into rebellion. Sin enters the picture, and when sin enters the picture, death becomes reality, whereas once it was not, a, was not present and did not happen. Not only that, but all of a sudden the relationship between God and man, broken. All of a sudden the relationship between man and man, broken. Between human beings, between husband and wife, between friends, between siblings, broken. All of a sudden, man's own relationship with his own being, broken. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And now all of a sudden, humankind who has fallen from relationship with God, now marked by sin, deserves just punishment for sin. Genesis 3. Genesis 4 through 11 show you the consequences of how bad that sin is. And all of a sudden, come to Genesis 12, and God calls a man and says, I'm going to make from you a people who will be a blessing to the whole world. And the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 12 all the way to Revelation chapter 20, is all about God's plan of redemption. Where God would, in the fullness of time, send not just anyone, but himself, his one and only unique son, so that those humans who are the pinnacle of his creation, created in his image of highest value, would not die without hope, but would have the opportunity to place their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who lived the life we can't, who died the death we deserve, who rose from the grave, conquering sin's child death, to offer salvation to any who would believe. And for those who believe, we can be taken off the block of slavery to sin and be redeemed and brought into the freedom that is a restored relationship with our Creator, God Almighty. Restored in our relationship with God, which enables us to have restored relationships with fellow humans, which then goes all the way deeper and allows us to have a re restored, renewed, and corrected relationship even with our own being. There is a cohesive story that reveals a clear doctrine. The early church summed it up in this way, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His, o His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, rose again on the, from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. There is a clear doctrine on who God is, Amen. Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a clear doctrine on who man is. There is a clear doctrine on how we are saved. There's a clear doctrine about what we are saved from and who we are saved to. There is a clear doctrine on what the church, there is a clear doctrine on what eternal life looks at. There is a clear doctrine and truth that the Lord is coming back to finish it all. There's a clear doctrine that is revealed in the story, creation, fall, redemption, glory. And there is a fulfilling existence that was revealed. Here's the reality. The, the true faith tells us some things are right and some things are wrong. Not all things are right. 
And what things are right are only right because they fall in line and are reflective of God's perfect character. Right and wrong aren't arbitrary. God didn't sit up in heaven and go, well, these things are going to be right and these things are going to be wrong. God created all things with a design and order. To break that design and order is to fall out of his character. Not all things are right. Some are right, some are wrong. Actions matter. Judgment is based on actions, both mental and physical. But here's the reality that when you and I trust Christ, we are able to live a life, and the life that Scripture calls us to is not a life of of drudgery following rules. It's a life of joy walking in His freedom, a life of satisfaction and purpose that everything from the enemy, that every temptation from this world will tell you that's just a bunch of drudgery. If you do that, you'll be submitting to a bigoted way of life. If you'll just know all of that is lies because the fleeting pleasures of sin always lead to the agony of death. But the sweetness of God's loving discipline in the life of his child to remove and refine sin out leads to an eternity of joy, of peace, of wholeness. This is the way you see most of Paul's letters written. The first part will be doctrine. And on the basis of this doctrine, this is now then how we live. Every category of our life is transformed by the faith. This is what the faith is, a cohesive story, creation, fall, redemption, glory, that reveals a clear doctrine, who God is, who we are, what the problem is, how God's going to fix it, where salvation lies, that leads to a transformed life where we clearly discern that which God says is sin and that which God says is holy, and we as believers, sealed, filled, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by His grace and power, walk that which is holy to know a fullness of life, of purpose, of satisfaction that this world tries to lie and say it can offer but will never touch. This is the faith. So what are we to do with all of this? If you're going to contend for the faith, church family, if we're going to contend for the faith, then we have to know and live the true faith. It's real simple this morning. We have to know and live the true faith. Here's what I mean. You can't keep up with the amount of heresies that, are, that people are taking Scripture and twisting it to say, look, see how this Bible verse quoted out of context, ripped of all original meaning, see how it supports whatever sinful desire I want? You're not going to be able to keep up with that. In fact, if you're able to keep up with whatever is the most recent heresy, it's because you're creating it. You don't want to keep up, but here's what you can do. You and I can know the truth so well that when we hold up what somebody says, we can spot and go counterfeit. The FBI doesn't teach their counterfeit people to go look at every possible counterfeit. They just teach them to study the real dollar. Know the truth, church family. Know the truth. This is precisely, I won't have us turn there and read it for the sake of time, but if you go to 2 Timothy, Paul writes Timothy, this young man who's a pastor leading a church, and and he says, look, the time is coming when people, they're going to be lovers of self, they're going to be lovers of pleasure, they're going to accumulate for them preachers who will tickle their ears, who will tell them what they want to hear. And not the truth. He presents a frightening picture, and he says, and Timothy, here's what I want you to do. You remain faithful to the Lord 
at His Word, the Scriptures. You ground yourself in the Scriptures. You ground yourself and you preach the Word in season and out of season, whether you see fruit or you don't see fruit coming. You ground yourself, you root yourself in the Word, which is God-breathed and profitable for correction, for rebuke, for giving a man everything he needs to walk the righteous life. But here's the reality, church family. Listen to this survey. This is done by the American Bible Association, the State of the Bible report from last year. This year's report I hadn't found yet. I don't think they've released it. In 2022, since 2018 building up to 2022, almost half of American adults indicated they used the Bible at some point. It dropped by 12% in 2022, meaning practically 26 million Americans stopped reading Scripture. There's, There's several categories, Scripture engaged category, And the Scripture engaged, and by the way, Scripture engaged just means you open your Bible three to four times in a year outside of church. It's pretty loose. In the Scripture engaged category, which is the highest category, 14.7 million adults stopped. In the movable middle, 28 million, 44% moved away. In the Bible disengaged category, which means you're not reading your Bible at all, it grew by 45.2 million adults in 2022. It found that in three categories, how often you read Scripture, how much it impacts you spiritually, and how it informs your morals. In the spiritual impact category, which relates to how you perceive your relationship with God and and how you feel and behave towards other people, it went up up, uh, six times that people have no spiritual impact from what they read in Scripture. It found that women are more likely to be engaged in Scripture than men, those who are older than those who are younger. And interestingly enough, those without children are more likely to be in Scripture engaged than those with children. Which means this practically. And by the way, it also finds that your reality as an adult to be engaged in the Word starts when you're a child. So here's what that study tells me. Dads, our children see our lack of being in the Word and they respond accordingly. It tells me this. Parents, In all the craziness of our homes, our kids see us not in the Word, and they determine their values accordingly. It says this, and you go, well, I'm not not a dad, I'm not a parent, I'm one of those older, great, you're one of those older, that's good. The statistics, the percentages are still terrible. The stats say most of us are never in the Word of God. So we honor it. We say we need it. We say we don't. Here's the reality. Many of us fail to contend because we simply don't actually know what we ought to know. So when someone comes around and says, hey, do you know God's a communist? Oh, is he really? Well, that's pretty convincing. I've never read that. Listen, the reality is most of Scripture really isn't complicated, church family. God intends the Scriptures to make wise the simple-hearted. Our errors come because we either don't read it or we read it too hastily and don't bother to take our time and study it properly. Or our errors come because we twist it to say what we want it to say. Or our errors come because we misunderstand it and don't have any accountability in the broader 
reality of a local church. But 99% of what Scripture tells us isn't complicated, which is why Jesus said, let the little kids come. Yet most of us don't contend for the truth because we don't know what we ought. So let me give you just three simple things. If we're going to contend for the truth, you have to know what it is we're contending for, the one true faith. But you know how you're going to root yourself in the one true faith? One, just read your Bible. That alone will put you in a category that only 10% of, of believers fall in. Read your Bible. And you go, well, pastor, I don't know where to start. Great, we're working on a Bible reading plan to help you out with that, but you don't even have to wait on us. You can go pull up something or just pick a place. Say, well, I, I need to know how to read it better. Great, you can go hop on. We did some training last spring, and on the other side of Easter, we're going to bring back our how to read the Bible and hear God talk to you, and you can walk through it. We'll train you. That's what we're here for as a church. But read your Bible. Don't just read it, but Scripture calls us to meditate on it. Joshua chapter 1. Literally, meditating doesn't just mean to think seriously on it, but to repeat it over and over again on my lips. You meditate on it by taking one verse you've read and just every hour on the first hour, take one minute to just think on that verse, repeat it to yourself. Or write every day you read one verse, write it on a note card or put it in a note in your phone and pull it out and look at it a couple times. There's so many ways you and I can meditate on the Word, but meditating on the Word goes beyond just simply reading something to actively thinking, process, quoting it. And by the way, the more you meditate, the far easier it'll be to memorize. You go, well, I'm not a memory person, Pastor. Yeah, but you probably know all the lines to your favorite song. And you've never tried. Why? Because you've meditated on that song. You've listened to it over and over and over. You've repeated it with your lips over and over and over. That's what meditating on the Word is. We meditate on it. We delight in it. Psalm 119 says this, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your Word. Your word I have treasured. Your word I have delighted in my heart that I might not sin against you. We delight in his word, meaning it's a joy to submit. When his word says I need to give something up, I give it up. When his word says an idea that I have been thinking and carrying is wrong, then I need to do battle against that idea. I submit to his word. I honor his word. I believe what his word says, and I do it out of love. I have heard some mainstream pastors go, look, our faith is about Jesus, not the Bible. And in one sense, it's true. We don't follow the Bible. We follow Jesus. Yes, the real living Jesus. But you can't split a hair between a person and their word. If I want to love my wife, I love her how she says. If my wife says, I don't like it, when the kitchen table's messy, loving her is, well, I'm in relationship with my wife, not her word. So I'm going to make sure to leave the table. It doesn't matter what I do to the table. No, if I love my wife, what? She's used her word to express who and what she is. Yes, we follow Jesus, and following Jesus means we follow him at his word. Yes, we walk with Jesus by faith, and what is faith? The confident resting of yourself upon that which is true though unseen. Well, how do you know if something's true but unseen? The Word. There's no splitting of hairs from Jesus in the Word. There is only one Jesus. He is who He is, not who any of us want or think Him to be. 
He is who He is, and He tells you who He is in His Word. We follow Him at His Word. We, we read the Word. We meditate on the Word. We delight in the Word, all because we love Jesus. And sometimes we fail to contend for the faith because the truth is we don't love how we ought to love. We love our ways and our desires. We love our busyness. By the way, that, the, the, the study on the Bible, the number one reason across every generation, builder, boomer, Gen X, Millennial, Gen Z, the number one by a long shot reason people don't read the Bible. I don't have enough time. Number two reason, I don't know where to start. Every other reason, a fraction. Those are the two number one reasons, but number one, far and away, I don't have the time. We love our busyness. We love the use of our time elsewhere more than we love Jesus. We're just not honest about it. If we loved each other, we'd contend for the truth because we realize that what people believe is going to impact how, how they live and move and breathe in the world. If we love the world, we'd stand for truth because there's no shot at redemption in a false gospel. Church family, if we are going to be those who contend for the faith, we have to be those who actually know what we're contending for. And the way we know it is by being in His Word, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Back in early October 1535, there was a man who, just, who had been betrayed by his best friend, he would be taken out in Brussels, tied to a stake, and strangled to death. And then they would proceed to burn his body, branding him a heretic with brutal hatred. Part of the reason this all went down is because he had opposed the king's unbiblical divorce that the pastors in his country schmoozed scripture to say, ah, it's okay, king, you, uh, you, you go ahead with that. So he had to flee, and this king wanted him back. Because here's what this man was doing. This man saw his own people unable to read the Scriptures for themselves in their own language. They were trapped by whatever the political priests of their day would say. And he began going through and from the Hebrew and the Greek, translating it into English. And as William Tyndale was being strangled to death, it's reported his final words were, O oh God, O oh Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Who several years later, not for right reasons, but God can use anybody in anything, commissioned that the Bible be authoritatively translated into English. And do you know whose work was the basis for every subsequent translation of the English Bible? Who we owe the fact that you can read about the one true faith in your own heart language? William Tyndale and all of his work. Here was a man who understood and actively contended for the faith and was willing to give his life for it. Church family, we live in a day where there is a lot of nonsense being taught. 
We live in a day, students, where you have access to more false theology than maybe any other person in the history of the world by means of YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. Where you can hear false gospels that are compelling and captivating. Where people seem nice. Where you can have every desire of your heart gratified whether God calls it sin or not. One, you need to know that's a play right out of Satan's playbook from the very beginning. But two, church family, whether you're a student or whether you're one of the oldest in the room, we have an obligation to contend for the one true faith. Will we? And if we are, we better know what it is we're contending for. Let's pray. Jesus, may we be a people who love you deeply, who seek you at your word, who trust you as you are. There is no redemption in a false gospel, and there's a lot of false gospels being shared today in your name. You're not surprised by this. You said this was how it was going to be. But find us faithful to be a people who are rooted and grounded in your word because we desire to be rooted and grounded in you. Holy Spirit, as we respond, may we respond according to how you're stirring our hearts. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray.